You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Stefan Durkan, who is a professor at Oxford and studies African economies. He's also someone who's worked with the UK's Department for International Development. So you have both an academic hat and a government hat. And you mentioned that it was about a decade ago before you wrote this book, Gambling on Development, that you had to kind of rethink everything you'd been doing in both of these domains. It seems like development economics is, on the one hand, a distinct field of its own, with its own methodologies, its own interests, and a distinct group of people who study it. But but on the other hand, I think from an outsider's perspective, people would wonder, why should there be economics for developing countries and economics for developed countries? Shouldn't there just be economics of growth or economics of good government. And I think in this book, you walk through a taxonomy of different approaches to development economics. And I think that by the end of the book, you've realized that there's a little bit of wisdom in all of them, but that there's no silver bullet. And it seems like policymakers, they want a silver bullet. And you described this one scene where you were meeting with a minister in the UK government who was new to the world of development. And you said, well, here's a pile of books. Here's like 20 books for you to read. And of course, I think her response was like, look, you read them. You tell me what's in them. Is development economics a domain that, I mean, have we really learned anything? Like, where are we in the world of development economics? Do you think that the kind of insight that you've come to over the course of your career is something that kind of everyone in the field is starting to come to, or are there still salespeople of silver bullets out there that we have to warn politicians against? So I do think that there's still a lot of snake oil being sold everywhere. There is still a lot of these people that have magic beans in their pocket and they want to show it. But maybe that always was the case. And I think at the same time, when you refer to what's been happening to development economics, do we need a separate one? I just want to pick up that for a moment because I like to think of it, I'm an economist that studies development problems. I don't think there's a distinct methodology to do this, but you systematically try to apply the insights from economics and want to be broad-minded and maybe increasingly study it also from politics or other things to apply to this question that is now so far removed from anyone living in the US or in Britain, that early takeoff, these beginning and these early moments. And I bet when the UK started to grow faster, I was looking at it recently that countries like low-income countries now, they're probably at the level of development and Britain was in the 1750s or something. You know, I bet there were snake oil salespeople there as well people that went around with the bullets, silver bullets as well. And it's, and I find it very shocking that they're still there. And But you touched upon it already that politicians love them. Give me an answer. Don't tell me that it's difficult. No, I need to have an answer today. I'm going to do it quickly. And especially a technology solution, whether it's a small machine or these days an algorithm, and suddenly it will all solve it, everything. It is so popular in a policy circle because, you know, You want simplicity because you need to communicate simplicity then to people that need to either vote you or support you or keep you in power, and so doing it. We're still there. We need to avoid that. I really think it's harmful that we do that. I'm not going to name names, but there's some well-known American professors in certain universities who still occasionally go around and seem to be showing these magic beans and try to sow them here and there and... I'm not a big fan of that kind of way of advising policymakers. It seems like there's two consumers of magic beans, right? There are the folks who are actually running in the political circles of these developing countries, but then there's also the folks on the outside, right? The folks who are providing foreign aid, financial aid, right? People in the development world or in governments. And are the people on the ground wiser to this or are they more realists? You mentioned there was this wonderful story where you were In the presence of all these ministers, I think it was in the DRC, where they presented this wonderful PowerPoint presentation (laughs) detailing all of the things that they needed to do and so forth. 
it was almost like designed perfectly for an audience of IMF specialists. But you knew, they knew, and probably everybody in the room knew that this was just some kind of theater. Do the policymakers on the ground in these developing countries, do they see the reality in a more objective way? Are they capable of seeing the context or are they also susceptible to buying these magic solutions? So I think I've met various types and maybe in some sense it gets to the core of the book that I do believe and I definitely have met and I definitely know of countries where those people that have power and influence in their places could be politicians, could be people in military, all the way to journalists, public intellectuals, and so on, actually really want to make progress. And those who want to make progress, they are much wiser about their own situation because, you know, they know what the reality is. If you want to be effective in policymaking, in actions, you can't do too many things at the same time. You need to think very carefully about your priorities. You need to be willing to learn what you do and you need to correct and you do so. And you then go to these kind of places and I name in the book quite diverse things. It's not just about China, but it can be places like Bangladesh. It can be places like Indonesia. It can be places like Ghana, where they are much wiser to that situation. And they also know how to deal with the magic bean sellers. And they know that the magic bean sellers need to come there and they will ask themselves, should I use a little bit of them? Because that's maybe one useful thing to do and doing it. And in contrast, you have the other places where they couldn't really care less. Those with power don't really care at all about trying to grow the economy, let alone to reduce poverty and doing things. Well, they love the magic bean salespeople because they come usually with a bit of money. They come with a bit of publicity, grand occasions of signing ceremonies, bad massive things to do. And in fact, and I think it's a bit in the book also that I really go against because it's so tempting for the people in development to then embrace these people and say, oh, they want to change because they want my magic bean. They agree with me that the technology here, that little thing, it's going to save it. Most of the time, it's these places where nothing will work. I had a really great experience in Ethiopia at some point. You know, there was a time, now there's conflict and so on, but there was a time, definitely a 15, 20-year period, where they're very committed to development. And I remember that because of some political reasons in the UK, we were more or less instructed to, as the aid agency, we should have more programs that involve property rights. stuff Because that's how we think we developed, so everybody should have very quickly rolled out property rights. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with property rights, but is that the next thing you're going to do and suddenly unlocks it all? So anyway, we're in Ethiopia, and there was a program. And actually, interestingly, we knew they were getting interested in giving more land security to the small farmers, and there's some good reasons why this could work. And I was on behalf of the government, of the UK government, had to kind of offer, you know, would you be willing to do this? There is an interest here, maybe that's of interest to you. And they said, look, we'll get back to you. And, and I said, but you, you think they will want to do it? No, no, we're very interested in it. But if we really want to do it, we're going to do it with our own money, because then we actually know that it will work in the way that we want to do it. But if we're not that interested, you can give us the money and we'll do it. And I thought, okay, that's a smart government. That's the one I like. They know their priorities, mm. and the aid community can do a bit on the side. Maybe we can review, what have we learned? So I remember when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of research around the theory of the big push. That was the idea in the 50s and 60s, that if you just gave a whole bunch of money to these countries, then they could escape this low-level equilibrium trap. It was really about resources. Poor people were poor because they were poor. And, you know, you didn't have any money to invest. So if you give them some money to invest, and we, we didn't get great results. I mean, some countries did really well, like the Asian tigers. Others actually even regressed, like a lot of the countries in Africa. The big push idea was abandoned or transformed, but there were still at least some people who were saying, hey, we just need to get people out of poverty as the first and most important thing. And at least with respect to getting people out of poverty, it seems like there's been a ton of progress. And I think most people don't really appreciate, and you describe in the book, how much progress there's been in, in just the last 30 years. On the one hand, what have we learned? Why have we seen such a huge movement out of poverty? Did this movement result in any way from insights that we developed in the world of development economics? Yes, and there's actually, there has definitely been learning. So you're absolutely correct describing 
I was taught like that as well. And so there is nothing wrong with the idea of the big push because probably all theories were all about complementarities. They need lots of things needed to happen at the same time. And so you translate in the big push. It was just that laziness that you're then translating it. As long as you throw a lot of money at it, all these things that need to come together suddenly are going to come about because that's the only thing you thought, well, that's the outsider has it and we'll give them a lot of money. And as you correctly say, many of these things didn't work. And actually, in the way to think about it is that you need to know what are the things you need to push? You need to get a sense, and I think I've, we definitely have learned. It depends a lot of where you are, what exactly, what are the levers that you can start using. So there's probably multiple things that need to happen, but it will be specific locally, and we have to be quite pragmatic about it. Right? So I write in the book also a bit about it. Look, in the end, what have we learned about what do we need for growth? The common lessons across the countries in terms of the pure policies, they're actually quite vague. Some sensible things. Be reasonably open. Let the markets reasonably work well. Government should probably do something on infrastructure. Get your macroeconomics sorted. But you don't need 30 or 50 or 60 years of development economics to come and tell you that. Because interestingly, what you imply you need to be quite pragmatic because you need to find the right combination of all these things what you prioritize. If we go back in the 1970s when, as you correctly said, quite a lot of things went wrong, I'm thinking here like for example of Julius Nyerere. Okay, so this is a guy in Tanzania mm. and actually he was a quite an enlightened leader. He definitely wanted to do development. He was committed to do it but he got trapped in the ideology around it. All the thinking was so mm. embedded around ideology then that he actually ended up thinking, well, it has to be African socialism, it has to be in this way, it has to be ideology-driven. They got a lot of money from the Nordic countries, the Swedes and so on, massive amounts of aid in current amounts of money. There's actually unseen amounts of aid that Tanzania got. But actually, they were not pragmatic. They were ideological. Well-meaning, but ideological. So I think what we've learned, definitely in the last 20, 30 years in the policy space, it doesn't help to be very ideological. You need to be pragmatic what you do in your own country. Do common sense and there's certain things, you know, we know more in economics about the things we shouldn't be doing than actually the things we should do. Okay, so we know that we, in a particular moment in time, massive tax cuts is probably not a good idea. In other moments, maybe it's okay, we don't really know. And so it's a bit like that. So sensible macro policies and so on. And I think that's definitely a big part that we've learned. And the same we've learned that we can't ignore certain sectors. So we've learned you can't totally ignore social sectors. You clearly need to do spending in health and education. We've probably also learned if you just only spend in education, that doesn't create any jobs necessarily and so on. So I think we've learned things, but not necessarily in this kind of narrow academic perfection type of sense. You know, that's academic research. We go for the perfection, the perfect answer to something, but more kind of what is a body of common sense ways of approaching it. And then like in the book I write about it, but you just need a sensible government, someone who's committed to actually do something with it, to then apply it. And I think for a lot of the very poor countries, like Malawi, I'm quite embarrassed for Malawi at times, because I think it shouldn't be so hard to add a couple of percentages to growth rates percentage points to growth rates. You won't be Singapore when you're stuck in the middle of Africa, landlocked with not very rich countries around you. But you can do better. And I think that's what we learned, actually, some sensible things to do a bit better. And this is actually, I think, behind that it's not just the extreme cases like a China with an incredibly driven way of getting to very high growth, but that actually, forgive me to say it a bit like, but India for a while muddled along a bit, but actually in its own model, and it's a very complicated, quite dysfunctional place, gets to 6-7% of growth rates. Because, you know, it's India had potential for a long time. And once it got rid of a bit of pure ideology in the 1990s for economic policy, it's not so hard to actually start growing. Now, it may not get to 10-12%, but it's not so hard for an India to unleash some of its potential. So we don't have an established playbook, really. There's a lot of similarities between history and development. So I studied history primarily because I was interested in development. So I was trying to figure out, okay, w what comes first, right? So there was all this debate. Okay, you got to have the financial revolution before you can have the industrial revolution. Well, then you got to have the agricultural revolution before you can have, uh, you got to have some property rights reforms. 
if we encourage people to build the roof before they built the foundation, that's just going to be money down the drain. We know if we're building a building, you got to start with the foundation and then you got to do the walls. Do we have a playbook that people can agree on that you have to start somewhere? Do we start with, hey, let's get rid of infectious diseases and then we can start talking about education? Or is there any consensus around a step-by-step? If you were to design a manual, you've got this new enlightened ruler of Malawi just wheeled into office and says, okay, give me the playbook. I think a lot of development economics starts with the assumption that person has the capacity to actually execute on the playbook. When in fact, there needs to be like a pre-playbook that gives them the tools that will enable them to have the capacity to do any of those things, right? That's actually a really good point. And think of historians or think of the development economists inspired by history. We got this entire field of institutional economics. And of course, if you take a book like Why Nations Fail, Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, you get a bit of impression there when you start reading it, that you keep on just building these foundations. That's the thing you need to do. There's no way to build anything on top of it. The first instruction would be get the right history. <laughs> you know, Make sure you're starting in the right place. That's the one that I also use in the book. Is It's a really frustrating bit is that because you end up telling countries, you know, don't worry about anything here and now. You just build yourself a good history now in building institutions. And of course, people don't have times. And actually, the house analogy, I've never thought of it, but it's actually quite an interesting one. Because you're not going to first spend all your time building good foundations because then you're totally wet and you don't sleep any night. You probably build something that's not quite perfect but you actually make sure that it has a roof that doesn't fall off entirely. So now after a bit, if you then put in some things, you have a very weak floor, but you put a few more things in, you need to strengthen that floor as well. Now, I'm a strong believer, the more I worked on development in this kind of, there is agency here and now to already do something. You know, you can't wait until perfection in anything. So you're not going to get all the education sorted and then doing it. And so people in development like to often think very much, actually, it came out of Marxist thinking, this kind of waves. You need to do then the first wave and then the second wave and then the third wave or whatever, or some Rostov type of thing that you had to think. And clearly that's not the way it is. And in fact, the last 30 years prove that that's not the way it's going. There's countries that become opportunistic. They're not perfect. They have, call it smelly state or messy states. They're smelly in the sense that actually lots of things that you really shouldn't approve of and there's corruption. It's not that I'm in favor of it, but you can grow with corruption. And that's very clear. You can do this. You need to just be sensible about that it's not the kind of corruption that kills off the growth. So you find a way of actually maneuvering within all your politics and the people that have power who you need to pay off that actually with not perfect institutions you can do something. So in the book I talk about Bangladesh. You know, It is the prime example for me of this place where aides of Henry Kissinger wrote it off as a basket case somewhere around 1980. So it's a famous thing. And the Bangladeshis are still so cross about, you know, you're a basket case. <laughs> And I remember actually my very first essay in development economics was I was given that title. Bangladesh is a basket case, discuss. And of course, I totally agree. You know, there's a country full of conflict, terrible politics, corruption, droughts, famine, anything you had, it all happened there. But somehow, and only in the 1980s, they actually started, despite all this and the dysfunctionality of the state, or at least the not perfection in any sense the institutions, they allowed the garment sector to be built up and they didn't capture the rents from the garment sector. They allowed NGOs to emerge, like BRAC, the largest NGO in the world, to actually be really active in social sectors and poverty alleviation. Few countries would allow Grameen or BRAC ever to become as powerful. Well, they did so. They let them space. And that's a little bit like, you know, yeah, we're not perfect, but we'll find a way of getting it. So that's the thing, you know, build that First, that hut that more or less stays, that keep on improving it. I think that's the way more to think of development rather than focus on the roof or focus on the wall or focus on the foundation only. We don't have the time. Countries don't have the time. I think the heart of your book is really about this thing that you call the development bargain. And of course, I think it's very pragmatic. It makes perfect sense, I think, to folks who have a political science background or even people who are schooled in the Kosian approach to economics, which is, look, if people who have the capacity to make the country rich have no interest in making the country rich, it's never going to happen. <laughs> the people who have the capacity to make it happen need to be capable of participating in that increase in wealth, right? They have to benefit. And what I've always seen, you use the analogy of Warren Buffett, right? And you talk about if you're an outsider and you're 
going to provide aid to these countries, you have to take a Warren Buffett approach, which is a value-based approach. But I think it's actually more like a venture capital approach, right? Because in venture capital, we always talk about how a successful venture capital ecosystem or a successful innovation ecosystem is one where everybody who participates in the growth of a new enterprise benefits from the growth of that new enterprise, right? So the employees benefit and the investors benefit and the founders benefit and the suppliers benefit and the customers benefit and everybody benefits. And if, if there's anybody who has the capacity to kill that project and they're not in on it, they're going to kill it. And so I think it's structuring these deals. So how do these deals work? Like, why is it that, say, in Ethiopia, a deal was able to be struck between the folks who have the ability to kill growth and the folks who are on the ground? How did this deal take place? And if you were going to predict which countries would have the preconditions for these kinds of deals, would you be able to do so? The second question is, of course, the hardest, and it's a real challenge, but I'll come to that. On the, the first part, how the deals are struck. So it's, again, very striking when you look around the country. So first of all, there was no signing ceremony on TV, okay? This is all implicit. This is not something that's been televised live, and suddenly the deal is there. So we're talking about implicit deals, implicit contracts that seem to be emerging. So when you look around in the different places, I find China first interesting, okay? So in a sense, they did around 1979. Whatever we think of China, they did something quite remarkable in 1979. Is actually, to some extent, a battle within the party coming out of a lot of instability, cultural revolution, Mao's death, the Gang of Four, the leadership struggles, and so on, that you actually got suddenly saying, rather than having all the economic policy based on ideology, we're actually going to become pragmatic. Yeah? It doesn't matter whether the cat is white or black as long as it catches mice. The kind of pragmatism that emerged. That's a huge step. How did that come about? Well, clearly with endless maneuvering within that group, and it was a hugely uncertain thing. This is not like Deng Xiaoping stood up and everybody applauded, oh, that's a great idea, we're going to do it. It was a lot of struggle. The key thing there, they made sure that the cadres participated in the economic growth, right? So they basically said, all right, everyone in the party is going to get rich as a result of this, right? That they're going to essentially become equity participants. I mean, first of all, the government is going to be an equity participant in this, and the party members themselves are going to be equity participants in this growth, right? So they're able to set it up in that way that it was a win-win. And I like the way you describe it, and I don't think in all countries it's necessarily like that as participatory. Of course, it's only 7% of the population that are members and so on in the party, so it's still selective. But you're right, it's set up in a clever way, so that actually it creates a stability. The deal is stable. And that's an important part. Within your own polity, it had to be stable. So think of it in Bangladesh, where the constraints on the deal were largely horizontal, different elite families and the whole kind of place. It's not about an ordinary people. That's not quite at the time that was playing. But it was very much, I think, the elite families that actually had won independence. You know, it was about 10, 15 years after independence, uh, separating from West Pakistan but actually haven't delivered anything. And they probably got a bit worried whether they actually could survive themselves. So there's a bit like, we're not going to fight each other anymore, as they were doing, but actually we better have an implicit coalition to actually let certain things happen. So ideology was more dumped, pragmatic, new elites that emerged, like in garments, we're not going to try to kill them off or whatever. And the same with Brax. So there it's very implicit, and it's definitely in their interest coming out of a crisis and thinking, you know, we may not survive here. Ethiopia is then... Arguably, the, the nature of the Ethiopian deal is interesting in the sense that it helps to explain maybe why it was much more fragile and seemed to have unraveled, is that we're talking about a small group of people. The end was a controlled thing, people that were still representing those who had risen up in power through this coalition led by Tigrayans that had gained power through violence, but they actually needed legitimacy. The prime minister at the time was very striking. He Clearly, and in his writings, it's very clear, he sought legitimacy through development, probably conscious that the underlying political deal was quite fragile. So you seek legitimacy through development and saying, that mm -hmm. will help me to stay in power, because there's no pressures then. But the political deal in Ethiopia between the different nationalities, the different ethnic groups, was quite fragile. And that's the one that actually came unstuck. Because actually, in any rent-sharing deals, it's not just the ordinary people have the benefits, but actually those in power as well. And actually, arguably, you could say in Ethiopia, it was very much 
some of these groups really perceived and then mobilized their own nationalities because they were not really part of the deal. And because we should not forget the conflict in Ethiopia, all these people were in the deal to start with. This is not like uprising against something. This is actually all the people that had the elite deal that then broke down. And I think you start looking at it in different ways. In Ghana, it was actually they needed democracy to actually help to create some stability. And a democracy of a kind where they learn to respect transitions of power, which they hadn't done in the past. You have a huge culture there now of presidents that get kicked out and then quietly leave, very unlike most African countries. That's the basis of their stability. There's an elite deal and saying, yeah, for a while, it's my time to eat. It's a bit corrupt there. It's my time to eat and control government and keep on doing relatively sensible economic policies. And then, well, if I kicked out, it's someone else's time to eat. And it's a bit more the recognition of that. So it's very specific. Now, you asked about predictions. Of course, history will still matter, the strength of the institution. If I can have a small elite can be really rich from oil, like in Nigeria, that's still going to be tricky because why the hell would I move aside? The deal works for, and that's not for five people, not for 100 people. It's probably for 50 to 100,000 people. Nigerian middle class, the top end, good life. They all have a house in London or somewhere, you know, and... It works because there's enough oil to have a really good life for 100,000 people or maybe something like that. That's hard to undo. The other thing is also if you have a tradition of people will really expect a bit of results from government, then it becomes easier to actually sustain it. And I think Ghana is a case in point where actually this kind of bit more results, bit politics is there. But then in the end, how do I judge there is a development bargain emerging? I'll have to look at actions and behaviors. So in my mind these days, what I have in mind is that in every country, if you talk to groups of people, and I've been doing this with Malawians a bit, if you were to make a list of 10 things that is really in the interesting power that doesn't change, but it's part of a symptom or maybe a cause of where everything is not going well, what would these 10 be? And we probably quickly agree on five of them. Then I would say, look, a government that begins to attack one of these five, I think they're actually trying to really change mm. because they are doing it to move away from this kind of low-level equilibrium. They say, no, we need to take a bit of a gamble to go for another type of equilibrium here. And that means undoing some of the vested interests that want the status quo. In the book, you talk about market failures and you talk about political failures or rather government failures. But I think really the heart of the book is about political market failures. Because it's one thing to say, oh, the elites just need to cut a deal with everybody else. Who are the elites? Do they have any kind of decision maker who can kind of act on their behalf? I've always thought that when we look at a case like England, it's kind of an easy case because they had parliaments and they had guilds and they had courts and they had all of these folks that could get together in a venue and engage in horse trading. And these countries often don't have stable representation of different interest groups. So do we need to spend more time thinking about institutional design around how to structure these bargains to facilitate them, to make it more likely that the parties can actually get together? And at least from an outside perspective, it seems like we're too fixated on dragging and dropping like a U.S. style or U.K. style parliamentary system and then just having first past the post vote. And if it's the Kikuyu that win, then they get to eat. And if it's the Kalenjin that win, they get to eat. That doesn't seem like an optimal way to design a mechanism for horse trading. So you talk a bit about governance and how you really need to get the governance right. So what would your advice be to political players in these countries with respect to designing these systems? And how would you convince them? If you're a Museveni and you have pretty good centralized control, like why would you ever want to give it up and have a more kind of decentralized governance regime? There's a lot in there and, and a lot that I agree with is that the simple importing of a political structure or a way of doing a particular politics, it just doesn't quite work. And something that frustrates me a lot working in government is that I've seen sometimes from the more political observers in inside governments, observing of the politics of other countries. The only time they were ever awake about Africa was, oh, there's an election. That's the moment. That's the key moment. And of course, these elections are actually in many places not that important. In Malawi, I'm afraid, they're not that important. It's that underlying deal making that's much more important. So yeah, we want to be careful. Just having elections is not quite the way necessarily to guarantee uh, any progress. So the way I would think about it, and look, 
forgive me, I'm an economist, and we have very simple minds sometimes about certain things. So it's a bit like you need to think very carefully either on improving the upside of actually a deal that is a bit better, and so basically making it worthwhile for Rumi Stephanie in the world, which I write a bit about in the book. I thought he's a clever player. There are moments that you thought there was a bit of a development bargain there. You know, it's very growth on the end. It did pretty well in poverty reduction and so on. It's just that he just loves to be the one in charge all the time alone. And so Uganda has actually quite a bit of a future. But you just kind of think, what can I do in terms of increasing the upside? And I don't mean it just as the leader where you pay them off or whatever. But you can make it just by the way we trade with them. If you really want to strengthen the Bangladeshi kind of dynamic elite, you really want to throw your markets open and you even want to subsidize imports from these places. Because it's pretty hard to export at the best of times. But actually, export is a long-run game. It's very hard to do just be very corrupt in exporting. You know, it's a hard stuff. It's extremely easy to be corrupt on importing. And so you create kind of incentives that they can take advantage. A lot of these bad deals are actually stay in power because also there is an awful lot of illicit finance. The Nigerian elite deal is, of course, facilitated by endless places where money can be parked, where dodgy deals can be done, where fake companies can be set up and so on. So actually, something we can really do is to make it actually much harder to keep these bad elite deals together by actually just making it so much harder that all these facilitators of illicit finance at the moment do. So you make it just much harder for these things. And I think there's a bit of a window because, of course, countries like the US and the UK believe in rule of law. So we are going to make laws now to do this for Russia. But of course, the laws will be there and we're going to make it tighter. Let's keep an eye on any of the other tin pot dictator, but also all kinds of elites that plunder their own places and are not at all interested in development. So there's things you can do and we need to be a bit more creative because just thinking a small project to build some capacity in the Malawian government, I don't think it will do it. You need to work a bit more carefully on the downside from the current deals and the upside of potential better deals. There's another thing that I said and I thought was really interesting on political markets, that this is actually the way often development bargains change and get a bit under pressure, because we want some kind of openness that new groups can emerge. That would be part of a dynamic growth-oriented society. They will want to have a stake in it. So there needs to be some space as well for them to be included to doing it. Because in many places, and I'm afraid that was the case in Ethiopia, it was definitely the case in Sudan historically, the best way to be taken seriously by the central state is by starting an armed uprising. <laughs> and so the political entrepreneur, the only route was to actually create more chaos. So you want to create enough opportunities that new elites can come in as well. And I think that's political markets. You're not thinking about entry and exit the entry deterrence, do you reduce the barriers for new elites to emerge and so on. So there's a lot of these frameworks of industrial economics from that actually we should use yeah. for to thinking more about political markets. Think like an antitrust type person, right? You want to facilitate the good deals and break up the bad deals. Yes. And so one way to strengthen the good deals would be to look for those players that lack representational capacity and maybe encourage it in some way. Is this kind of in line with when people talk about building civil society? Is there an overlap between that discussion and this idea of maybe fostering trade associations, fostering chambers of commerce, or fostering maybe non-political forms of representation so that they can get a seat at the table? Yes, so that's correct. But you need to be really careful and selective on. So you mentioned Chamber of Commerce. In many places, these are the, usually very close to government, these are the connected businesses and so on. So they're not necessarily the ones. But the underlying point is really good. And just a couple of examples that recently I came now across is that, so, so one thing, I got very frustrated in Nigeria. People like me get very frustrated with Nigeria in general. There we've poured a lot of money, also from outside, but even internal philanthropists, money in civil society. But the point with civil society is that actually, if you then go and agitate, there has to be someone who cares enough that actually agitation has an impact on them. For example, they were looking at the transparency of the way the elections were controlled in Nigeria and the, the change of money and exposing all kinds of things. But fundamentally, the elite doesn't care about it at all. So there's, these programs has virtually no impact. So just building up, it's a bit like supply and demand. Building up the supply side without there's actually a demand for any of that, it's not going to help you that much. So you, you need to think a bit like, what is the entry point, say, in Nigeria? 
But interestingly, a few days ago, we were talking with a group of people around what would be an elite bargain look like in, in South Africa, where they clearly need a new growth model and it's quite stuck and worrying in all kinds of ways. And someone, like I mentioned it on a podcast like this, is like Ricardo Hausmann, of course, is a smart guy, and he's been working, thinking about growth stuff in that country. And he made the observation that the interests of mining have far more influence than the interests of agriculture. And I mean that broader agriculture, not just a few Afrikaner farmers or whatever, but broader agriculture. And of course, because the mining interest is just a few players, they can organize themselves well, they can do it. And so their case is always heard. So there's nothing that will ever happen. While, and someone like Ricardo would say, and I probably would agree with it, there's a lot of growth potential and export potential still from South African agriculture. They are incredibly good in they're supplying already lots in Europe, but they could do far more. And of course, it's very labor intensive. There's also more black farmers involved in that and so on. But they're just not organized. And so it made me think, clearly, there's actually a good idea here to say, well, how do you bring a trade organization, not just as a lobby group, but actually yeah. as a force for shifting this kind of relative importance in politics? And I think that's exactly also what you allude to. I think that's absolutely right. But you need to get a good sense of the underlying political economy networks, you know, who would be the players. And this is a bit like I find interesting, just a final quick thing, is that when I talk to political scientists, they then just say who are the ones that could make noise and politically are important. If I talk to economists, then it's like, oh, you look at the GDP thing. It's the two together. You know, you need to kind of have a thing that because we end up sometimes supporting these groups where there's no chance in hell that they ever will contribute to growth in that economy and actually change anything. <laughs> no, that's not helpful either. You need to find the groups that at the same time can also be helping in the transformation of these economies and make them grow, mm -hmm. make them dynamic, make them inclusive, and so on. So we need to two sides and thinking, thinking about your point in two ways, from the economic and from the political side. With agriculture, I mean, you can have a solution like we have in the U.S., where the agricultural interests are overrepresented in the Senate. It's a dispersed group, but we try to counter that with overrepresentation. I think Japan does the same thing, and many of the European countries do the same thing and maybe create something of a balance. But another question I have for you, if we look at some of the really bad cases, right, we look at, say, Congo, we look at Afghanistan, you couldn't imagine a better situation than to put somebody who wrote a book on failed states in charge. That's what happened in Afghanistan. And so I think it's a bit ironic that we had someone who is like an expert. I mean, if you, Stefan, we put you in charge of the Congo, would we expect any kind of success? And then I guess the, the second question is, we know about the resource curse, right? And I, I think the resource curse is misunderstood by most people. Most people think, oh, if you've got a lot of resources, then you know, you're not going to have any need to pay attention. It's not really about the presence of resources. It's about the presence of resources that can be controlled relatively simply. And the know-how is relatively easy to acquire in one place, right? So oil is a perfect example. Mining is an example. Foreign aid has more or less the same function as the resource curse, right? Where if you look at Afghanistan, the vast majority of their budget came from foreign aid. So they spend most of their time trying to satisfy their external constituents instead of their internal constituents. So I'm somebody who studied the history of taxation. And my view is that when the government needs your money, then they will pay attention to you. And if they don't need your money, they're, then they're not going to pay attention to you. Should we be thinking about designing optimal tax policy in a way that would encourage more development? Is that a technological silver bullet in some way? There are many people that would agree with that as the kind of primary thing we should be doing. Yeah? So people like Tim Besley or Torsten Persson, they've written books and articles about it and say, look, it's a bit like the first thing you start with it. So the tricky thing with that silver bullet is that, and that definitely happened in England historically, the state needed your money. Okay? So that's not the same as saying helping a state to get money. And so some of the most effective research projects on working on governance and government have been all these programs, including in the DRC in Congo, they're published with this kind of real air around it. Look, we found something where we can get the government to work because they now become very effective in raising taxes. Now, I kind of smile at it because it's the last thing I want to do in the regime at the time. Kabila's regimes put more money in their pockets. And so you could have the same kind of thing. So you expressed it well. What is much harder to get to a situation, and that's not an optimal taxation design, but actually a situation where the state needs you. 
and that somehow mm-hmm. it needs money from you or something. And of course, then we come back with a natural resource curse. It doesn't need money from you. With If we overdo aid, it doesn't need money from you. But the problem is if we then send in endless IMF experts how to raise taxes without actually thinking about what they'll do with it, it won't have any impact either. And so it's when taxation becomes a part of the accountability that it's there. So you're saying that even if Kabila, he needed your money in order to build his house in Provence, right? Shouldn't that be enough? If the only way I can build my house in Provence is to provide you with public goods that enable you to build businesses, shouldn't that be enough? Does it matter that he's going to spend his money on the house in Provence or or spend it on other stuff if the only way he can get it is to... Yeah, but since he controls the state, and of course it happened with Mobutu before the two Kabilas came, so Mobutu clearly believed in that principle. Let's make sure we raise all the money because I do want my house in the Provence. I want a few houses in the Provence and I want lots more. But in some sense, a kleptocracy is a way like the only thing I focus on is on raising the money. And I don't care how I did it. So Mobutu initially was doing it with taxation and then he was taxing all the expat business that had all disappeared and he was just taking them on. Then he started looking from his own people and he kept on just plundering and plundering. And of course, because you control the state, you have the monopoly of violence. Well, he didn't have to do that much. So this is a bit like where the sequence of saying what you said again, you know, only if I need to provide the public goods to be able to raise the taxes, this fiscal contract can work. Mm. And the fiscal contract historically got to work in the cities in Europe where we first noticed this fiscal contract and so on. And I'm sure historically in other parts of the world as well. But we can't take it for granted. And it's always a little bit like what you do in policy and say, oh, clearly taxation design is the optimal thing to do. Oh, we sent in the IMF, go and raise the taxes. I said, no, it doesn't mean anything will be done with it. So that other part of trust in the state has to be there as well. That mutual dependence has to be there. I don't think I can take it for granted. But weren't the wars, the English wars and the French wars, weren't they just like houses in Provence? Louis XIV wants to go after the Spaniards so he can install his nephew or whatever. How is that different from Provence, <laughs> like having a bank account in Bermuda? If you go to the English parliamentary records, and look, I'm not an expert on it, I'm just occasionally you, you hear these things, there would be endless debates in Parliament in terms of what do we get in return? Yes, they needed money for wars, but they had to actually, they, the, the contract with the landed classes was on all kinds of certain things and so many things that happened in the changes in agricultural structures. And they had to start, the, the pressure to provide something in return was there. And that's what I've emphasized, because of course, with Parliament being strong in the historically in the British case and the kings being weak, they had to allow then certain things to be happening with that money that benefited the estates of these people. And I think that's what I'm alluding to is that if you are you you can't take it for granted that actually public goods will be created. Of course, maybe we learned that actually Mobutu style plundering would probably not allow your regime to continue for very long because the regime ends because there's no more money left. And so maybe there is something there. But I will say I, I am concerned that we make it too easy to that it's on the taxation side. And the, the only thing I basically say, an optimal taxation policy and design should have a form of what I do with the money as well. And it's that accountability, not necessarily through a political control, but the actual facts, what you do. And I think that's interesting. If, if I go back to, say, Ghana, and we saw that actually in the recent election in Kenya, where people begin to actually vote based on some results now, that they actually move away from purely ethnic base, because after a bit, that story is not credible anymore either, that I'll look after your ethnic group. And then you had to basically the case of the constituencies around Mount Kenya, that everybody, including Kenyatta, thought would be voting for the one guy. And the vast majority now voted for the other one, which is clearly because they actually hadn't seen anything. They were taken for granted that they could be t- be taxed without actually getting in anything in return. Now, you have this wonderful analogy where you talk about the hippo's ears. You probably didn't create this, but I'd never heard it before. And I think the message is that a lot of what happens happens beyond the immediate visibility of the folks who parachute in and take a look around. So to what extent do you 
development economists really need to do a deeper dive into the kind of de facto workings of the economy and of the political system. I don't know how you do it because you, you visited probably 50 countries just that you mentioned in the book. How can you go in there and size up what's happening? Isn't it require a lifetime of immersion in these countries to really understand the rest of the hippo? So on that last point, definitely, thank God for lots of very good scholars and a lot of people you end up being able to talk to and they can recommend you the reading and so on to do it. And of course, I was doing this a lot in a quite a privileged position, a kind of senior person in DFIT. And so you've got a lot of people debating, discussing and helping with the essence. But I think, and I don't design, it's a bit like, it's like why you don't put me in charge of one of these countries, because... You know, what I would, the first thing I would do is actually getting a group of people that actually really knows the place. It's a bit like Ashraf Ghani, you mentioned him, and in his book, he wrote, he counted something like 140 things you needed to do in the first 100 days. That clearly showed to me he had never worked in a place like that. And of course, he had been working in the US all this professional career. And that's the kind of thing. So you need people that know how the place would work to do it. But what you also say on what economists and political scientists need to do is to actually yeah, be very careful not to assume too much about how a place functions. Okay, so dig into it and be challenged and be questioned about it. And there is a bit of work. There's good scholars in political science and in economics that actually do it. Maybe what you then end up seeing published needs to be able to be read by an editor of a journal who sits in Chicago and never left the university. So you end up, mm -hmm. what they write is probably not commensurate to the insight that they've gained, which is a very sad state of affairs of academia, because we write it for the bloke or for the woman who's never really left their ivory tower, who controlled the profession. So that's a problem in the profession. But there are development economists that spend much more time on the ground. I know political scientists are much less about the theory about it, much more doing the empirical work. So these are the ones that begin to help us and cover. And of course, locally, there are, you know, because partly, as you said, these countries are getting better off and so on. We also have very good scholars there now, and we need to give them a voice and help them to articulate the, these realities. So we need to dig deeper, yeah. And the hippo, most of it is underwater. So we need to be willing to go into the murky waters to discover a bit more about it. Now, as a practitioner with DFID, you described this wonderful scene that I mentioned at the beginning where you met with the minister and she said, okay, what do I do? And he said, well, here are 15 books for you to read. But at the end of the day, I mean, you need to provide some advice and explain what do you need to do. And to get back to that kind of venture capital analogy, I always think of the venture capitalist, their main job is to help the founder prioritize, right? Just figure out, okay, I've got 500 things to do. What's top of the list? So if you were advising someone in the UK government who is going to provide some kind of aid to one of these developing countries, and when they provide the aid, that's when they have the opportunity to help shape the priorities to some small degree of the recipient of that aid, what would be the advice that would be embedded with that aid, right? What would be the kind of conditionality that would be embedded with that aid? What would be the top priority that you would want and I know it's going to differ from country to country, but how would you go through that process of figuring out how to make the biggest impact with the, the smallest amount of aid? So the first thing in the analogy of the venture capitalist comes back in is that you need to be willing to be selective. And that includes the places where you want to invest. You can't go quickly at scale in certain places. You may need to do smaller things. Now, that actually is quite hard, as seen from London or from Washington, where often the politicians want to make the priorities and actually want to carve it up, as seen from London or as seen from Congress in Capitol Hill. So you want to actually be willing to say, we'll need to be more selective where are we actually going to spend it, but then we'll need to be willing to adapt it and be much more agile locally with your team of how you actually adjust it. And so it's a, it goes against the models that we use, where the priorities are set in London or in DC. And I'm really struck that say, oh, this is the priorities, we are doing health or we're doing food. We've decided it's food. Now, for the kind of change I want, there's not at all clear that working on food security is for every country in the world the best entry point to actually get change. For the reason that we had, you know, in certain places, there may be certain groups where there's actually an opportunity to work with. And if they make plastic buckets, I would work with the plastic bucket producers rather than with the food producers. Mm -hmm. I would want to do this. So you need to decentralize, you need to be willing to do it. Now, from the moment you decentralize, and that's the hardest one, you need to be willing, which is as outsiders we don't really like to do, 
is to place your bets. And then it's a bit like the venture capitals, trust your team. Trust these teams that, that they're actually going to do it. You know, you give, give them advice, but trust somehow that team that, that actually will do it. That means you make a bet on Ghana and the Ghanaians that are in power rather than trying to say, no, no, actually your priorities are wrong. I'm going to do my own because then you do everything. It's nothing there. So that's a little bit the tricky bit you need to be doing. And in, in the development aid, we don't like to do it. You use the word conditionality and say conditionality will not work because the guys that don't want to develop will not develop because you put some conditions on your aid. They will find a way around it. And the people who want to develop, why do you put the conditions on it? Help them to do it in their way and, yeah, and make sure that they learn. And you could put your money in evaluations and say, look, as long as you promise we evaluate well what you now did and then willing to actually embrace some of the lessons, it's fine. But rather than, no, no, I'm going to tell you that you're going to prioritize in your country food security or health system strengthening and in your place, we won't do that because that's not what we do. No, you need to be willing. If in the end it's these elites that somehow have the power to block everything, well, you need to work with them. And that means the governments, the big players, rather than saying, oh, I'm going to be the cleaner than clean little outsider there working with an obscure NGO with the British or American flag on. And wow, will I feel good that I'm changing this country? No, you're not changing this country. You're doing trivial things. You may do good, but I don't think the sums involved from foreign aid from governments are just there to do little bits of good to do it. This is an opportunity we miss because if we only do that, we'll screw it up further. As we saw in Afghanistan and so on, where the volumes involved, there's no way you could ever build up a state. Whether Ghana was the right person and all the other problems, there's just no way you'll ever build up an accountable state by acting like that. By the way, that's, it's not very popular to tell my boss, you know, it basically say, give your power away, it has to be more locally, trust the other government. Of course, that's why I can sit in that room as an advisor, but maybe being less successful than I sometimes would like to be. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for joining me. The book here is called Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. It's not really about gambling. <laughs> it's actually trying to convert the gambling into some strategic betting. I think that's really the idea. Thanks for joining me. Hope to chat again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Greg. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.